So good evening. Last night I gave a was a kind of a pivot point in the retreat where we started to shift emphasis a bit from the wisdom wing of the two wings of awakening more towards the compassion wing. And I mentioned that within this uh, metaphor, the compassion that compassion is a kind of umbrella term for all skillful states of heart and mind. But tonight I'd like to focus more directly on compassion itself because in some ways there's a, a direct relationship to suffering. Because of that direct relationship to suffering, it can be the most challenging of the four Brahma-viharas. Before we go into compassion in more detail, I want to give a bit more context about the four Brahma-vihara practices and how they're all interrelated. And as I said last night, metta is the foundation of these four. So on retreats, if the Brahma-viharas are taught at all, it's usually the one we hear the most about. And as a result, we can often get the wrong impression that somehow kindness is supposed to be our default response to every situation. And we can cause ourselves a lot of grief because in some situations, metta may not be the wisest attitude to be cultivating. And it's quite possible that one of the other three Brahma-viharas might be more beneficial. So if we are finding it difficult to develop metta in a particular situation or for a particular person, we might need to use wisdom to see would one of the other practices be more relevant, be more appropriate. And ideally we would have days, maybe weeks, to be able to explore each of these qualities but in the course of a nine-day retreat, we just unfortunately don't have that much time. But I do want to give you at least a brief overview of what these qualities are, how they work together, and how they support insight, because this isn't uh, so often taught. So first, in terms of how the four qualities relate to each other, last night I gave you that uh, laying out of the practices by Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs, and I posted it on the wall out there so that you can refer to it. There's another way that I have found it helpful in my own practice to think of how these four are connected. And this understanding came about when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts a few years ago. And one of the teachers was talking about the nature of mind, and he quoted a 19th century Tibetan meditation master, Shabkar, who said, The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. So the mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, Intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And during that retreat, I'd been practicing the Brahma-viharas, all four of them quite intensively. And so when I heard this idea of the mind as being like a flawless piece of crystal, 
that quality of transparency made sense to me. Because when the heart and mind are clear, we can automatically respond in the appropriate way with kindness or compassion, joy or equanimity. Just as a crystal or a diamond naturally responds to light. So sometimes the diamond flashes red or blue or yellow. All of these colors are possible because of the diamond's innate purity. So in my mind I started playing with that image of the diamond and I started to imagine a traditional diamond shape. If you have your eyes closed, you might have to look for a minute, that sort of four-pointed shape. And because metta is the foundation, I put metta at the bottom point of that diamond. And then because it said that when metta or kindness turns towards what's pain, towards what's painful, it flowers as compassion, I put compassion at one of the two side points of the diamond. So metta, goodwill, turns towards difficulties, it results in compassion. On the other side, across from the compassion, is mudita, or appreciative joy. Because when that same foundation of metta, or goodwill, turns towards what's going well, towards success, and towards what we can appreciate, it flowers as appreciative joy, or mudita. So compassion, karuna, and mudita, appreciative joy, are on the two side points of the diamond. And then when... Mudita, joy, karuna, compassion come together, we get equanimity at the top. So equanimity is a slightly old-fashioned English word for balance of heart and mind. And in the teachings, it's that (coughs) mind that's completely stable. It's not moving towards wanting anything. It's not pulling back, not wanting anything. So equanimity is the capacity to stay balanced with life's 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows. So equanimity is really the pinnacle of the diamond, the apex. So using that arrangement of the Brahma-Vihara, we might be able to see how we can bring ourselves back to balance if we've got unbalanced in some way. So for example, if the metta starts to feel a bit dry or maybe a bit light and superficial, we might move towards compassion practice and connect with the understanding of suffering to help bring more gravity or more depth. On the other hand, if we've been doing a lot of compassion practice and perhaps starting to feel a bit bogged down or a bit overwhelmed by all the suffering that we're focusing on, we might want to consciously move towards mudita, towards appreciative joy, and see if we can connect with what's going well, what we can celebrate, what successes, what we can appreciate. On the other hand, if we're really on a roll with mudita, sometimes it can start to feel a bit sort of giddy or uh, ungrounded. And then we might want to slide into equanimity to consciously cultivate a more balanced approach. 
Um, equanimity is actually a useful antidote to any kind of imbalance because it is inherently about balance. And so again, that's why it's at the top of the diamond. So in a similar way, there's a quote from another Tibetan teacher I'd like to share, this time from Longchen Rabjampa. He was a 14th century Tibetan monk. And he compares all of these qualities to uh, to uh, the natural process of uh, growth. He says, out of the soil of friendliness, or metta, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna. Watered with tears of joy, mudita, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, upeka. So again, we have this sense that metta is the foundation, or here the soil, that the other qualities grow and develop from. And I liked the idea of seeing compassion as a beautiful bloom. And yet, for me, that also highlighted how in mainstream society, that beautiful bloom hasn't generally been highly valued. If we look at the state of the world right now, of our communities, it can feel like we're in the middle of an epidemic of non-compassion, actually of cruelty. And it can feel like we're reaping the results of this undervaluing, undervaluing of compassion on a pretty wide scale. And perhaps because of mainstream society's tendency towards individualism, idealism, perfectionism, competitiveness, competitiveness and so on, for some of us even the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. In some circles it's associated with weakness. So how do we start to bring this quality into our lives and into our practice. So remembering that it arises out of this foundation of metta, of friendliness, we can cultivate that goodwill and then when it feels strong, invite it to turn towards dukkha, suffering, and to meet that suffering with kindness and where possible to help it release. So the Pali word karuna is usually translated into English as compassion. But I just want to offer a bit of a caution here, one that I forgot to mention earlier, that the English word compassion is the heart that beats with or feels with the other's suffering. And that is an aspect of what's meant by karuna in the Buddha's teachings. But it's also in the Buddha's teachings about the wish to be free from suffering. So it's not just about empathy and trying to feel identically the other person's pain. We need wisdom to help us not fall into that pain and to keep orienting to the possibility of it being released. And where possible, if possible, to help that pain release. So this is does still first require that we are willing to turn towards another's pain or to our own pain. And this is not the usual way we relate to dukkha. 
Again, it's totally counterintuitive to move towards suffering instead of away from it. So we might ask justifiably, why would I want to turn towards suffering? Suffering hurts. And one reason is that inevitably all of us, because we're human beings with bodies, there's going to be pain in our lives. There is suffering. Some degree of suffering is inescapable. The first noble truth that I spoke of uh, a few nights ago. So one of the benefits of being on retreat is that we get to train and gradually expanding our comfort zones to be with our discomfort in skillful ways, to practice meeting small difficulties now so that we can start to build our compassion muscle before we really need it, before there's some kind of more intense challenge or crisis. So I I use the image of uh, diving through surf as this willingness to turn towards difficulty. I think most of us have had that experience here of swimming in the sea and one of those monster waves starts coming towards us. Usually our instinct is to try and run away or swim away from it. And if we do that, we end up getting dumped or slammed. If we can have enough courage to turn and face the wave and then just before it breaks, dive under it, it'd still be turbulent for a while, but we usually come out the other side in much better shape and it's better than being face-planted. So you can see from that image that it does take courage to do this and it takes presence of mind, mindfulness to see the reaction and then compassion to release it. But as we keep turning towards our suffering instead of running from it, again with practice our capacity to do this gets stronger and stronger. And... Often one of the first obstacles when we try to develop compassion is, at least for myself, not even knowing what it is. So for me, in the beginning of my practice, it was completely foreign terrain. It was so absent from my life that I didn't even know that it was missing. So I've shared the story a few times of... um, the first insight retreat I did in Thailand, I, I referred to it the other a few nights ago, uh, with Western teachers, and I was totally inspired by that retreat. It was the first time I'd sat a Vipassana retreat, and I decided I would go back. I went, came back to New Zealand, saved money so that I could go back and do some more retreats with these teachers. And on the second retreat, I was really inspired because they brought in this teaching on compassion. And it was almost shattering to me to keep hearing them talking about this beautiful quality. And I realized that that was what had been missing from my life until that point. It hadn't been part of my upbringing. It wasn't in my family. It wasn't really in the society around me in ways that I could recognize. And yet on this retreat, hearing the teachers talk about compassion, something just opened up. Almost it felt like I was being hit over the head with a sledgehammer. Wow. 
So at the end of the retreat, I went to the teachers and thanked them for this new direction in their teaching. And I said, it was the same as the last retreat. And those particular teachers do teach exactly the same retreat every time. So <laughs> word for word. And I totally didn't believe them. And they had to show me the book of their teachings to show me that actually that emphasis on compassion had been there in the first retreat too. But it was as if that first time I just didn't have the receptors in my being to even hear the word, let alone take it in and uh, make anything useful of it. So I just like to share that in case any of you might be feeling that compassion is some distant and foreign quality. And a second, a very common obstacle to this willingness to turn towards pain is that to some extent we are hardwired to avoid it. We do have fear and try to avoid experiences that are painful because potentially they could be injuring or life-threatening. So we do tend to have an instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. But I like to emphasize again, there are two wings. So even as we're cultivating compassion, it needs to be supported by wisdom. So we don't want to have a kind of foolish compassion that is pushing us into dangerous situations. We still want to be developing discernment, clear seeing, so that we can understand when our fear is just an unconscious reaction and when it might be wise fear that's keeping us out of genuine danger. And over time, perhaps with some degree of trial and error, this capacity to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called foolish compassion gets stronger. And this foolish compassion is when we might get caught in unhelpful habit patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which is, of course, the opposite extreme. And it's harmful not only to us, but the people we're trying to help too, because we might inadvertently be reinforcing codependence or some kind of enabling behavior. So wisdom helps us to know when to say no as well as when to say yes. And the point of this wisdom is not that it makes us immune from suffering. Paradoxically, it makes us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, we won't be able to open to the 10,000 joys either. So part of this training in compassion is to begin to open more to the full spectrum of life. And also honoring and recognizing those times when we do need to close the heart. We do need to stay safe. So I have this image that came up when I was thinking on retreat a few years ago about this when do we open the heart, when do we close it? And I'm sort of doing this because that was the image that came up. It was of a sea anemone. So when I was a little kid growing up in Scotland, we used to go to the beach and uh, my father would take us looking at the rock pools along the seashore. And 
on the edge of these rock pools were all these colored sea anemones, you know, those little tentacly blobby jelly things. They're quite pretty. They were red and orange and brown. And I was really fascinated. My father showed me how you could touch their tentacles and they would retract and become this smooth blob of jelly. And then if you waited long enough, the tentacles would reappear. So I would, I thought this was magic and I would ask my dad, why do they do that? And later I learned that they withdraw the tentacles because they need to stay safe. But when they're safe, they can't feed. So at some point they have to open the tentacles in order to feed. And so there's this dance of getting nourishment or being safe, feeding, being safe. And I thought in some ways the human heart is like that. At times we do need to close down to be safe, but we can't stay that way all the time. We also need to risk opening up so that we can feed. So a few years ago, I was talking about this process in a weekend workshop in Australia. And one of the participants said that just hearing the word vulnerability made him want to scurry back into his wombat wombat hole. So if you know wombats in Australia, they dig burrows and kind of stay down there. And I think, you know, something in all of us could probably relate to that, that at times we just want to stay in our wombat holes. But there is a growing body of social science research that's recognizing the link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. So some of you probably know the work of Brene Brown. She's a professor of sociology at uh, Houston University, and she spent at least the last 10 years studying vulnerability and courage, authenticity, and shame. And as far as I know, she's not a meditator, but the conclusions that she comes to do sound uh, pretty dharmic. And she even quotes Pema Chodron, the Tibetan, Western Tibetan Buddhist nun. So I'd like to read you something that she wrote about working with shame in particular. She says, if you have a Petri dish, one of those glass uh, laboratory dishes, and you have shame in there, that pervasive feeling of not being good enough or not being whatever enough, thin enough or rich enough or popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough, That shame only needs three things to survive in its little Petri dish and actually to grow exponentially and to creep into every corner and crevice of your life. And that is secrecy, silence and judgment. If you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with some empathy, you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you, and say, you're not alone, shame dies. Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she goes on to say, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think vulnerability is weakness, when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we do. 
Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion can absolutely kill us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing the pain kills people every single day. She's talking about the US, but similar elsewhere. We're the most obese, in debt, medicated, workaholic, addicted adults in human history. Pain won't kill you, but numbing the pain kills people every minute of every day. So, what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort and practice being uncomfortable. So, how do we actually do this? Brene Brown points out that empathy is what makes the difference. So in her words, if you can share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say you're not alone, this is what helps the shame to be released. And to me, what she's describing here is compassion. And in the context of a retreat where we're not so actively engaging with each other, we can learn how to train in compassion beginning by befriending ourselves. So I've been emphasizing this meeting our own experience with kind curiosity, getting to know ourselves better so that when we come out of retreat, we're in a better position to be able to befriend others too. And we can imagine, we can practice this by relating to ourselves at times when we're going through difficulty as if we were our own best friend. It's surprising that most of us have much more capacity to be with another person's pain, with a friend's pain, than we do with our own. So we can start by just trying to be a friend to our own difficulty as we would to a friend who is going through hard times. And then as this starts to become more easy, we can offer it to ourselves more easily too. And I see this process really as one of listening. Listening is a practice of compassion because it's about tuning in or attunement. Listening to our own and others' experience with as much kind curiosity as possible. And I like the, the image of Kuan Yin as a, um, what do you, I was going to say stereotype, but that's not the right word, archetype. She's the archetype or the embodiment of compassion in the later Buddhist traditions. Is that Kuan Yin up there? Might be something, or one of, she's probably one of the Tibetan Taras maybe. Anyway, Kuan Yin, as you might know, is the embodiment of compassion. And she's known as she who hears the cries of the world. So she's listening to the suffering of the world. And in the Zen tradition, they say she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a graphic image. And again, coming back to this idea that compassion is not just about being with suffering, it's also the willingness to act to release it. When uh, we see images of uh, Kuan Yin, she's often sitting in a particular posture that's sort of like this. So one half of her body is in meditation, it's just sitting and receiving, and the other half is ready to spring into action. 
So it's that balance between receptive and active that I think is true compassion. So this quality of listening, as I mentioned the other night, in relation to the Brahma-viharas, I sometimes think of this image of the Hubble telescope. And I, I read that it's about, it's, it has something inside it called a faint object camera. And I, again, I had this image of this technology that's searching for signs of life. And so maybe we can have this faint object camera that's looking into our own hearts. And as our antenna, our apparatus get more sensitive, we start to tune in to these signals of compassion. And for me, it was a turning point in my practice when I realized that all of these Brahmavarhara practices are not about somehow trying to manufacture or conjure up these different qualities. I was trying to kind of almost force myself to feel kind or force myself to feel compassionate. And of course, it's pretty obvious that that's counterproductive. But when I could settle back and just listen more carefully, I could recognize that underneath all of the um, hindrances, there was actually a sort of natural sense of these qualities. And it was just a question of trying to tune in and listen. So this deep listening that Kuan Yin evokes include, includes deep listening to our own pain equally with everyone else's. And in my own experience, I've come to think of self-compassion as being a kind of a universal solvent that can dissolve all difficult mind states. And I've uh, shared that in some of the individual meetings I've had with some of you already, that this invitation to try to meet our own difficulty with this quality of self-compassion. And sometimes when I offer that as a possibility, people look at me almost with horror. Because for many of us, the conditioning is so strong to not go in that direction. So one author, he has this quote, Nothing is loathsomer than the self-loathing of a self one loathes. It's just this sense of, um, or actually as one Zen teacher famously put it in very Zen terms, that sense that we're that little piece of excrement at the center of the universe. So that paradox of, you know, the sort of narcissism and the self-loathing kind of compounded but the guy who talked about the loathsomeness, he also said, when you look at the mirror, I hope you'll also remember that there's always another way of seeing things, and that's the beginning of wisdom. So we acknowledge perhaps this conditioning, and we recognize with the beginning of wisdom that there is another way. This is a gateway to compassion. So again, coming back to psychology, I read a paper a few years ago by a psychologist who is working in this field, and he talks from his own experience of uh, 
dealing, working with clients about just how difficult self-compassion can be for people. He says, commonly for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent or not deserved. This usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. Exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant or unlovable, or something that they'll be punished for self-compassion by paying, it for late, paying for it later or having it taken away. So I wanted to share that because it is just to normalize how difficult it is for most people to start to orient towards self-compassion. And sometimes when I'm working with students and we explore this resistance, one of the things they tell me is that they can't find any phrases for self-compassion that feel authentic or true. So once I was working with someone who was really struggling and we were, so we decided to try and find some phrases that might feel true for this person. And we played around a bit and what we came up with was something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to consider the possibility of having the intention to move in the general direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion for myself. And that felt authentic. So they agreed to work with those phrases for a while. And we start where we are. So for this person, it had to be over there. And then little by little, slowly, slowly, it could start to get a little bit closer. But even having that much intention is a start. And we don't need to use phrases at all. So as we were doing this afternoon, we were working with more of just the energy of metta and then radiating it. In the same way, we can do that with compassion. So one powerful way of helping bring us out of when we are locked locked in pain is to consciously try and open up to other beings who might be suffering similar pain to us or do anything that helps us take ourselves out of that sort of self-centered, um, self-absorbed state. So again, a few years ago when I was quite a few years ago now I was on staff at IMS and I woke up in some kind of not good frame of mind and I could just feel how you know with our thoughts we make the world I was making a not very pleasant world for myself and maybe I remembered back to that experience I'd had on retreat of just trying to connect to all beings and I just thought I need to do something to get myself out of this and at the time I was doing volunteer work in a hospice about 45 minutes away. So I thought, 
you know, the way this day is going, I may as well just skip work and go and visit people in the hospice. And when I got there, I was assigned to work with somebody who had a massive tumor on their tongue. And it's really hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're sitting in front of somebody who is in so much pain and wants to communicate with you and can't. And it was a stretch for me because I realized she said to me, I'm, you know, I love to talk, but it's agony. So would you talk to me? Would you tell me your life story? And I realized in that moment that one of the things I liked about hospice was that I didn't have to talk. <laughs> I could just listen to the other people. So she really put me on the spot. And I kind of, a little bit embarrassed, said a few things about my life. And at the end she said, wow, you're like a movie star. I've never met anyone like you. And we had a really sweet connection. <laughs> and... 45 minutes later, I left the hospice and I was in such a good frame of mind. So again, there's this magic of whatever we can do to get ourselves out of that collapsed and self-absorbed state. Anything that helps us to sort of universalize the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta, that suffering is universal and satisfactoriness is universal and it's not i don't it's not personal my pain my challenges are not unique they're not my unique neuroses all of us are subject to these ups and downs of life so later on in the development of uh, buddhism this understanding of compassion started to uh, be highlighted more and more. It's definitely there in the Theravada tradition, but it um, was developed in the Mahayana and became the um, Bodhisattva ideal, which some of you may know of, the someone who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this is an ideal that personally resonates for us, we can still connect with some understanding that everything that we're doing here might seem like we're just working on ourselves. But because of the truth of interconnectedness, everything that we do here to strengthen kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, it will have effects beyond what perhaps our intellects can know will benefit not only ourselves but everyone we come into contact with and again because of our habit of self-criticism it can be easy to dismiss our own good qualities our own intentions and some be cynical or see them as insignificant so as a way of challenging or even renouncing this kind of tendency to undermine ourselves, it can be helpful to connect, to reconnect with the deeper purpose behind what we're doing. That's one reason on opening night I invited you to make these aspirations, just to um, connect with this quality. And connecting with our deepest aspirations can be a powerful act of self-compassion. So the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea has written about this and I'd like to share what he's written because I found it quite 
uh, inspiring. He says, there is a great power accessible in heartfully connecting with our own deepest aspirations. Self-criticism self-criticism tends to squash these aspirations and obscure our connection with them. Conversely, though, tuning into and sustaining a focus on the felt force of these aspirations within oneself allows them to gather strength and allows us to open to that strength and this can significantly undermine self-criticism. So having this open heart and connecting with our aspirations can really act as an antidote. And in that spirit of helping us to connect with our own deepest aspirations, I'd like to finish with a few lines, some of my favorite lines from the Bodhicharya Vatara, Shantideva's treatise on a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Many of you probably know this, it's a Tibetan text that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. And it is a whole book, so I'm just going to read a few lines from it. Because for me, they're very inspiring in terms of the um, possibility of where we can bring our compassion. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.